Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Turn up the radio and sing along. It's time for another great song. This is the Great Song Podcast. Seasons greetings and welcome once again to the Great Song Podcast. I'm Rob Alley. I am JP Mosier. And we're here to celebrate the greatest songs in modern music history. We're going to tell you what makes them great, why we think they're awesome, and why you should too. JP, how you doing today, man? I am doing fantastic. Just ate a bunch of greasy fried chicken. It's mm. amazing. I'm covered in grease all over my hands, just like our good friend, Bob Seeger, although he's probably covered in like motor oil and car grease. Oh, yeah. I'm in chicken grease, <laughs> feeling good, ready to dive into some old time rock and roll. Oh, my goodness. Today's going to be a good one. This is a, actually, this is literally an all time jukebox classic. And I'll tell you why in just a little bit. But today, we are indeed talking about Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band, old time rock and roll. Let's get right into it. Just, this is, some songs get you right in the feels of, like, wistfulness and, you know, like, longing for a simpler time. This is just, like, gritty. Yeah. Give me a car to work on. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Detroit. That's right. You know what I'm talking about? Go Pistons. Go Go Pistons. Go Pistons. Give me Bill Lambeer. Uh, go Tigers. There we go. Red Wings? Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure, why not? Why not? Detroit. There we go. Go Kid Rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kiss? Are they Detroit? No, they're not Kiss. Maybe. Are they? Rock I know City. they did Detroit Rock City. Oh, I don't yeah. think they're actually from anywhere. Anyway, we're talking about Bob Seger. Bob Seger. Robert Clark Seger. And the Silver Bullet Band. Coming at you. Coming at you from the 1978 album Stranger in Town, written by George Jackson and Thomas E. Jones Third. Kind of. Sort of. More on that in a little bit. Teaser. Uh, so this is from the 78 album Stranger in Town, where Bob Seger, honestly, the, the album cover kind of conveys that. It's really just him uh, with kind of a city city lights thing behind him, but he doesn't look very comfortable. No. He kind of <laughs> looks like a stranger in town. Um, so Obviously hasn't showered. Yeah, I know. Dirty old hippie. You know, dirty young hippie at this point, I guess. Now he's a dirty old hippie for sure. Um, Anyway, 
Bob Seger, uh, blah, 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 charts and awards. Let's talk about it. The initial release went to number 28 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it re-entered in 1983 after its appearance in the movie Risky Business, uh, and it peaked there at 48. So it re-entered the charts after having been re-released. Um, Risky Business, by the way, I, I, I took a peek at the clip from Risky Business where this is the famous clip where Tom Cruise slides, like, in. slides into frame in his underwear. We, by the way, we spared you guys. The, we thought about doing a video. Yeah, we thought about doing but, a promo video, yeah. but you just we went another route. Nothing in there that you wanted to see. So, um, but Risky Business, I've never seen the movie, but it's but it's a great reminder that Tom Cruise used to have jacked up teeth. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Go back and watch Risky Business. Watch Days of Thunder. Tom Cruise has some whack teeth. So uh, if there's anybody on this planet that I think whose career has been helped by veneers, it's probably Tom Cruise. Ben Affleck, Tom Cruise, they're they're rocking him pretty good because he had the one like he. I mean, I don't mean to be nitpicky. I got my own issues, but he had the one. But he's Tom Cruise. You can take his, a shot. Exactly. One of his one of his front two teeth was like 45 degrees or more turned <laughs> to the side. And I'm like, all right, cool, man. I mean, like, he became a sex icon before he got his teeth fixed, so good for him. But um, anyway, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna attribute his career to this song. How about that? There we go. How about the, how about the impact of Tom you Cruise? Started Tom I mean, Cruise. The impact on Tom Cruise by, by this song. Thanks, Bob Seger. Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this song also randomly, kind of randomly, went to number three in Australia in 1987. After being re-released there, I could not find for what reason. They were like, hey, you remember that song from a few years ago, Old Time Rock and Roll? Let's just start playing that again. Hey? Yeah. yeah. Um, Mate. So I, I don't understand. Big supporters of the podcast out there in Australia. What Thank up, you guys Australia? For, for the support. Thanks for listening. Um, and here's one we haven't seen before. At least I haven't. It was ranked number two uh, on the top 40 jukebox s- singles of all time. List. I saw that. What do you look for on a jukebox? You oh, go man. to a jukebox. What's your... I go to a jukebox. Listen, I used to go to the Pizza Hut in East uh-huh. Ridge, Tennessee, and on the jukebox, they had Spin Doctor's first album, Pocket okay. Full of Kryptonite, and I played the same song every time. Two Princes? Or? Nope. I played Shinbone Alley Shin slash Bone Hard to Alley. Exist because it's 11 minutes long. It is. You get more for your money. Exactly. Good. And it's got the and name Alley in it, it's which awesome. is Rob's last name. Yeah. So we need to do a Spin, Spin Doctors episode sometime. That's, we probably will. That song is amazing. We, won't, we wouldn't do it on the podcast because nobody cares about it, but it's We awesome. may do some Spin Doctors reference. I, uh, I have a jukebox story. Every year on Thanksgiving, me and my dad go to the Waffle House for breakfast, and we buy waffles for the family Okay, um, and bring them back to add with breakfast, and we always play Ring of Fire. By Johnny Cash, solid on the jukebox and the Waffle Do Wop at the Waffle House. Those of you that don't know the Waffle Do Wop, I don't find your closest Waffle House and just go do yourself a favor and play the Waffle Do Wop. It's a it's not that great of a song, but is it like a Waffle House? It's a Waffle kind of House. Thing? It's a song for Waffle House, so you'll only find it on the Waffle House jukebox. Waffle Do Wop. Go, awesome. uh, go take a little. I wonder how high Jukebox Hero by Foreigner would rank on that list. Mm. Because it's a jukebox song. It's literally a jukebox song. On the song. jukebox. Yeah. I wonder where it... And maybe, uh, I wonder if, I bet, now nah, this song probably is on there. I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett. Probably. Put yeah. another dime in the jukebox, I wonder baby. what number one is. I didn't even look up number one. Did you it's, look up number yeah, one? Mm-hmm. It's Hound Dog by Elvis Presley. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe since that list came out, I looked at a more recent list. I think it may, uh, I think uh, Old Time Rock and Roll may have actually dropped to number three. Uh, number two now, I think, is actually Crazy by Patsy Cline. Okay. Yeah. 
So I'm wondering the, if those because those songs get a bump because they used to be played yeah. on the jukebox yeah. all the time. That's whereas. what I think. I, like because the, the list was compiled by the AMOA, the Amer- Amusement and Music Operators Association. Okay. So it's literally like people who manufacture jukeboxes and box track. Plays. Yeah, the plays. So I, I think that's a literal. Like, these are the most popular jukebox songs. It's not, like, a subjective list. I think they're, like, these are literally the most popular ones. So, yeah. Old-time rock and roll, man. It's yeah. a song that is, it, it's, it's like sort of being nostalgic for the golden age of rock and roll, right? It's, like, sort of like being nostalgic for Chuck Berry, you know what I mean? But still kind of sounding like the 70s. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it takes a dig at disco in the lyrics. But really it's got kind of a but disco groove. Like, yeah. You know, that boom, 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 boom. You know, it's just, it drives like that. But it's it's four on the floor, you know, rock and roll. Um, so I think it has that kind of, I think that lends itself to being a jukebox anthem. You know what I mean? Very cool. Uh, let's talk a little bit about... The writers. Okay. Um, let's hit Thomas Jones the third first because he matters the least, um, <laughs> frankly. Um, he was the producer of this song, I believe, and he got songwriting credit on everything that he worked on, apparently. So uh, that's just – here's – by the way, I have a subtitle for this episode. Uh, this is Old Time Rock and Roll, subtitle, uh, Sad Things to Learn About the Music Business. <laughs> Okay. And we've got some bits of music knowledge coming at you later yeah. at some point. Including, by the way, a bonus interview that uh, you guys didn't even see coming with Jim Moose Brown, who, uh, uh, among being a phenomenal songwriter of his own, and we'll let him uh, kind of give his own resume uh, for that. You may know him from the song Five O'Clock Somewhere that was a smash country hit. Um, Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett. Yeehaw. And uh, but uh, he he in addition to doing many other things is Bob Seger's touring keyboard player uh, and, and uh, guitar player and guitar too. player. So um, we're going to talk to him a little bit about life on the road with Bob Seger here in just a little bit and a few other things. And he's also going to give some sad realities of the music business. So there's going to be several of those in today. So just just we're going to talk a little bit about the industry as we go because there's some really interesting things about this song that kind of reveal some some truths about the industry. Uh, but one of them is sometimes if you're a producer, you get songwriting credit. And um, you don't necessarily have to do anything. It's just if I was in the room or if I touched it or if I had any part, I expect you to give me credit. And, a little bit of royalty. Yeah, so uh, that is Thomas E. Jones third. He was the producer and got songwriting credit on this. Let's move on then to the other songwriter listed on this song. And there's a third, well, we'll get there in a second. George Jackson. George Jackson, uh, he was a pro or at least semi-pro songwriter from a young age. He ca- had kind of brushes with success uh, with Ike Turner and with a vocal group called The Ovations. Um, eventually, he went the way of a Uh, like a staff songwriter for various labels, one of which came to be Malico Records, which used Muscle Shoals Sound Studios to record their songs. That's going to become important as we uh, dig deeper into this song. Uh, Except especially important in the Beat the Band section. Oh, yeah. And for that. Um, He wrote for Clarence Carter, Wilson Pickett, and others, including uh, the first hit for the Osmonds, One Bad Apple. It went straight to number one and was the breakout hit for the Osmonds. Uh, so George Jackson, lifetime songwriter. He's considered one of the kind of unsung greats from that era. Um, and so, and he was, a you know, really entrenched in the, like, Mississippi, uh, Muscle Shoals, even kind of Memphis 
um, songwriting community, all the stuff that came out from that area, Southern uh, soul and uh, even, you know, obviously Southern, some of the rock that came out as well. Um, that's from uh, George Jackson. Uh, this is from, I'm going to read here just a second from songfacts.com. Uh, it says, this is one of the few songs that Bob Seger recorded that he didn't write. Now, he was big on, you know, he, he just recorded his own songs. Uh, it was written by the songwriters George Jackson and Thomas Jones, who worked for Muscle Shoals Sound Studios, where the song was recorded. Although Seeger worked on the lyrics, he didn't take any songwriting credit. Uh, this means that Seeger doesn't own the publishing rights to the song, and Jackson and Jones control when it is used in movies and commercials. Um, according to Seeger, he was feeling generous that day and says that not seeking composer credit was, quote, the dumbest thing I ever did. <laughs> uh, Seeger claims he changed all the original lyrics except for the old-time rock and roll part. More to come on that. Um, he recorded this song. So even though this is listed as Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band, uh, he actually recorded this with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. Um, although that in itself turns out to be something of a misleading statement. Um, but the Muscle Shoals rhythm section was a famous group of studio musicians who owned, they used the recording studio in, uh, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Other singers they had worked with included Aretha Franklin, Paul Simon, and Rod Stewart. So they're like a legit, basically you've got a recording studio that has a house band. We've talked about this before with members of um, uh, one of the other bands that we've talked about. It wasn't Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yes, was it Earth, Wind, and Fire? I can't remember. No, uh, it, Booker, Booker T and the MGs were a house, were a house band. Um, and so th- that, this kind of thing. So whoever comes in to record, they get this rhythm section and they just play their tracks. They all work together a lot. They know how each other work and they can boom, 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 you know, knock it out. Um, so they, um, they gave many songs a feeling of authenticity, which was important to Seeger. Uh, this is according to Song Facts because his last album was very successful and he, didn't want to be um, perceived as selling out to pop radio. I don't know that that's true. I mean, I'm sure he didn't want to be perceived as selling out, but I'm not sure that that's why he had them, you know, play on this. I don't know. Um, anyway, what happened is, here's how, here's how this song got made, okay? Um, and this is behind-the-scenes uh, recording industry fact number two for today, okay? Um, George Jackson wrote this song. He cut a demo with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, okay? Um, Then later, Seeger was in the studio recording a few songs and uh, working on this album, Stranger in Town, and they played on a few of the songs. So the Silver Bullet Band played on a few of the songs and the Muscle Shoals rhythm section played on a few of the songs. And then toward the end of the project, some they they hand him this demo of old time rock and roll and he's kind of like looking for maybe one more thing to put on the album so he's like cool let's record this song so the silver bullet band comes in and they do a take you know a couple takes of it or whatever and it's not feeling right right and he tries it with i, I believe another group another backing group and it didn't quite feel right so what they end up doing is they purchased the original demo for George Jackson took his voice off of it, put Bob Seger's voice on it, and that's what you hear on the radio. That's what we just listened to from, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever. Um, that is crazy. I mean, to me, like, they just bought this demo, 
and just switched his voice. Swapped vocals. It's literally – It's a, an accompaniment track. Yes, exactly. It's, it's a, a soundtrack in church. Exactly. If you stand up in church and you say, push the play. I didn't come prepared to sing, but you pull it out of your purse <laughs> yeah. and you hand it to them and yes. they hit the play button. Yeah. That's what Bob Seger did. That's right. They and just recorded it and made millions of dollars off it. Yeah. I mean, so uh, – uh, Seger didn't get much. Right. Yeah, not <laughs> but, in the way of songwriting. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's how that went down. They just bought George Jackson's demo – and and added Seeger's voice. They added one other thing that I'll talk about in a few minutes that I'm so over the moon to talk about because it's such an amazing story. Um, so th- that's how that happened. Uh, it just they decided to buy the demo track and they put his vocal on it and that ended up being the record and now it's a classic. Um, they also recorded the the Muscle Shoals uh, rhythm section. Also recorded Night Moves, uh, Katmandu, and several more that were on the Silver Bullet Band LP. So we've got tonight. We yeah. we've got tonight. Yeah, that several songs like literally half the songs on this album were not the Silver Bullet Band. The only ones off this album, the uh, the Silver Bullet Band, did Hollywood Nights, still the same, feel like a number, and Brave Strangers. Those are the ones they did on this album. None of those are radio hits. Yeah, like, I mean Hollywood Nights gets Hollywood play Nights now, maybe, but but other than marginal. That, yeah, compared to the yeah yeah the Muscle Shoals Cats, they they killed it, and uh, so that's just I don't know. That's kind of fascinating. At what point? At what point do you consider maybe I shouldn't call this Bob Seger and the, and the Silver, Silver Bullet, Bullet Band? Band. It, yeah, it should be just Bob Seger and friends. But, yes, <laughs> Bob Seger and company. Yeah, but you know, I don't know. I like I, you know, but but that is a reality. You know, we've talked about, um, and these are questions that we wish we would have asked Jim Moose Brown as yeah. we've been thinking back through some questions that we missed. In the interview, because you know you always hang up, and hindsight's twenty twenty. It's like, man, yeah. this would have been a good one to talk about. Like, what's, yeah. what's the Silver Bullet Band's take on? Yeah, yeah. And so originally, uh, the uh, apparently the Silver Silver Bullet Band was not necessarily feeling this song, um, but as they did it live, they did it live a few times in Europe, and the response to it was so great that they kind of backed off that, and they were like, "Fine, this is going to be huge. You know, this is going to be a mega hit for us." So. Um, Really interesting. You got anything else on just kind wanna, of the, the song, the recording, the song, all that stuff? Well, I was going to say, do we want to tie in now to meet the band since we're going to talk about since the band? We're talking, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. Let's meet the band. Hey, let's meet the band. It's time to meet the band. Hey, mama, let's meet the band. Let's all meet the band. Hey! All right, we're going to meet the band of actually the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section yeah, because they're the, the one that played Bullet. on this. So yeah. we will eventually touch on the Silver Bullet Band, I'm sure, in the future. But to keep it to keep it legit, which is what we do every time, we're going to talk about the band that played on this track. Um, so we talked about how they were the house band at Fame Studios. They've been compared to the Wrecking Crew, Funk Brothers. The, they're actually known as the Swampers. I'm going to give I'm going to give one one quick correction. They were not the the house band at Fame Studios. They had come from Fame Studios okay. and formed the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. So they started. They they had come from Fame Studios, okay. which was like the big studio, and then they kind of started their own. And, okay, and became the guys who recorded. Thanks for Muscle the clarity Shoals. on that. Yeah. So thanks for that, Rob. Um, on keyboard, Barry Beckett. Um, in the 1973 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band Traffic, he was a traveling keys player, but not a member. So he was huh. not a member, but he was their traveling keyboard player. Pl- played on Paul Simon's Still Crazy After All These Years, Leonard Skinner, Bob Dylan, Rod Stewart, Dwayne Allman. He died in 2003 at a house here in Hendersonville, Tennessee, where we really? record it. So not far down the street um, from us here where we're recording. Um, on lead guitar, 
uh, with two Grammys, Pete Carr. He has a, a Grammy for uh, There Goes Ryman Simon, the Paul Simon song, and Against the Wind, Bob Seger. So, there you go. Um, produced the Stranger in the, in the Town album. Um, at age 15, he went to see the Almond Joys, which is the Almond Brothers band at the time. And he brought his guitar to the show, and he asked Greg Almond to show him some guitar lines. But Greg's like, that's actually my brother Dwayne's department, and introduced him to to uh, Dwayne Almond, and they became great friends. And they became friends up until Dwayne died. Um, and after Dwayne died, he actually started, Pete Carr did, Started a band uh, called the Hourglass Band with Greg. Oh no, I'm sorry, Dwayne was still alive. It was Greg Dwayne and Paul Hornsby was the band. So pretty big band. His most notable guitar line is on Main Street by Bob yeah. Seger, which is. <laughs> and Rob just sang Main Street. Down Main Street. There it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually really high octave of that line. Yes. It's you don't want to hear me sing that. Go for yeah. it. Um, this next guy on here who played guitar um, on this track is actually just credited as musician. If you look like through all the stuff that he was a musician on, but listen to this. So he was a musician on "When a Man Loves a Woman" by Percy Sledge, on "Respect" by Aretha Franklin. So that first, the Percy Sledge song was in '66. "Respect" by Aretha Franklin on '67. "Brown Sugar" by Rolling Stones in '71. On "Kodachrome" by Paul Simon in '73. On Saved by Bob Dylan in 1980. Rob, you'll know that song because that's the mm-hmm. same oh, yeah. song that Lyndall Cooley did on the Send the Fire album. Heck yeah. And on 90, Shower You With Love by Lattimore. So he had hits in the 60s, hmm. 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's awesome. As just a musician. So cool. uh, On bass with Boz Skaggs, Cat Stevens, and Bugs Bunny. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hold a lot up. of animal names. Um, David Hood on bass. His son, Patterson Hood, is now the front man for the drive-by truckers. So. Oh, Kept it in the family. Um, on drums, Roger Hawkins was with Wilson Pickett, and he played drums on Mustang Sally. So oh, yeah. And he also did work with Staple Singers and Etta James. So that's the meet the band section of the you Muscle know, Shoals rhythm section. They worked with a bunch of nobodies. So <laughs> I mean, right. What can you say? Yeah. yeah, Muscle Shoals is one of those, like, you know, you, you hear a lot about session, like areas of session work from this, um, you know, from this period, right? There was a, like, a Memphis sound and there was, you know, Motown, Detroit sound, uh, and but and Muscle Shoals is kind of that. Um, it doesn't get talked about as much, and I, it, but it's very influential. This this group uh, of producers, writers, and artists, um, and and bands who were in Muscle Shoals, you know, at this period and even a little bit before this, very influential in music. But they don't get a lot of the credit for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why. I'm sure there's probably research to be done there, but. Um, Really interesting. Muscle Shoals, Alabama. You just, you don't hear that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Anyway, um, a little bit more on Bob Seger and on the album. And then I want to get into kind of some of the controversy behind this song. Uh, Who would have ever thought that old time rock and roll would be chock full of controversy? But it is. Uh, Bob Seger sold almost 50 million albums, including 10 straight platinum albums over a 20 year span. From 1975 to 1995, he released 10 straight million-selling albums. Wow. Come on now. I mean, that's solid. Detroit! Come on. (laughs) Um, That's that's just going to be my exclamation of goodness for the rest (laughs) of the episode. Um, And in fact, the first major label to offer him a contract was Motown. Can you hear? Wow, I can't see Bob Bob Seger on Motown. On Motown, yeah. Uh, He is like a Detroit icon, hero. Uh, man of the people. It's like there's all these stories, you know, um, 
he is to Detroit as, you know, Springsteen is to New Jersey. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing, that kind of, that level of like hero worship with Bob Seger, apparently, where, you know, he's selling out, you know, multiple thousand seat arenas in Detroit before he was anybody in the rest of the country, that kind of thing. Like, like Rob Alley is to East Ridge. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, cause I can't, I can't go anywhere, you know, in East Ridge, Tennessee, people taking my picture and all this stuff. Um, yeah, it, just like before he was, before he was anybody, he was huge already in Detroit. And, and, you know, obviously now he's huge everywhere, but even now when he goes back to Detroit, it's just a whole other level of, you know, it's on when Bob Seger comes back to town. So, um, very cool. Um, the album 1978 Stranger in Town was his 10th album, which... How I would have thought it was earlier. Yeah, I would have, you know, okay. But this, and this is, anyway, it's his second with the Silver Bullet Band. Uh, the first was 1976's Night Moves, which was a huge album. Um, following in my, following in my, my theory that the way to become iconic, two huge albums back to back is what you need to be cemented forever as an icon. Here's how good this album was. This album, Stranger in Town. Here's how good this album was. Old Time Rock and Roll was the fourth single. Man. Like, still the same, Hollywood Nights, We've Got Tonight, all preceded it. This was the fourth single from this album. That's how fire this album was. Night Moves included Rock and Roll Never Forgets, Night Moves, The Fire Down Below, and Main Street. Um, And then Stranger in Town was followed up by Against the Wind. So he really had quite a three-album stretch. All sandwiched there together. And yeah. it's funny, we were talking about which Seeger song do we do. Yeah. And Rob picked We've Got Tonight. My pick was We've Got Tonight. I like Fire Down Below. Yeah. And then we're like, we got to go with the one that, because we couldn't agree. Yeah. And so we're like, we got to go with the one that makes the most sense. Yeah, exactly. Like if you, you ask 10 people to name a name Bob Seeger song, song, eight of them are going to go all-time rock and roll first, probably. Yeah. Maybe maybe seven. Maybe seven. They, somebody will go Night Moves. But, uh, yeah, so but in, in the mid-'70s to early-'80s, he had that stretch of albums, and then those three were bookended by live albums. He had one before and one after those three albums, really kind of cementing that era, you know what I mean? I'm sure if you listen to the first live album and then the second live album, you can hear kind of the musical growth of, you know, and the evolution of the Silver Bullet Band and, you know, the, the newer stuff that he I'd be doing, interested so. to listen to that, too, and see crowd participation, if there was a way you could measure that some way on yeah. live albums. I don't know if you can, because they're always going to amp up the crowd yeah. to make it sound pretty level and even, but I would imagine the second live album actual venues and settings would have been packed full of a lot more sing-alongs and, like, more crowd interaction. Yeah, I actually remember, I have vivid memories of riding around as a kid, young kid, in my dad's light brown Dodge Ram, uh, listening to Nine Tonight, which was the second of, awesome. those, of those live albums. And it's just on so cassette, good. On cassette, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, on cassette, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's just so good. Like, it feels great. Those era, um, you know, like Nine Tonight, Running on Empty, Jackson Brown, you know, those kind of live albums, even Frampton Comes Alive, they just have a certain feel from yep. that era, you know what I mean? And they just, oh, it's, it's, it was a, it was a great time for just big arena, arena rock. And I don't mean that in a hairband way. Yeah, not metal, not, yeah, yeah. not hair like cheese this rock, is, but this he, He's classified as, or subclassified as like Heartland rock. Oh, that's you know good. what I mean? Oh. That makes sense. Like he's Detroit, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> come on. It was that. It was truck like, yeah, truck yeah. <laughs> 
working class rock. Uh-huh. You know, it's kind of what this was. Jackson Brown was the same. John Mellencamp, that kind of stuff. Uh, even Springsteen, you know. Um, sweaty. Swe- sweaty rock. Exactly, yes. Rock, rock with calloused hands from the dirt. Chicken grease rock. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so this really just if, just as easily could have been called Bob Seger and the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, but I guess Silver Bullet <laughs> Band has a you know maybe a nicer ring hey, to it. I just thought of a neat little tag on that. I didn't know that you were going to go there with the live album stuff, but Bob Seger's favorite album ever is James Brown Live at the Apollo. Ah. like that's his number one favorite album, which is a live album. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit. You got anything else on the album before I move on? Jump on. Okay. Go. All right. I want to get into a little bit of the controversy over the lyrics because this is uh, another sad reality of the music business. Not sad, just a reality of the music business. Part of it. Um, so again, this song wasn't written by Bob Seger. It wasn't even written for Bob Seger. Uh, what you hear on this song is a songwriting demo with Bob Seger's vocals on top of it. Um, but there's controversy surrounding the lyrics with Seeger claiming that he changed most of the lyrics and just kind of magnanimously declined songwriting credit. Okay. He said in a 2006 interview, this is all a quote from him. All I kept from the original was old time rock and roll. That kind of music just soothes the soul. I reminisce about the days of old with that old time rock and roll, the chorus. He said he changed everything else. I rewrote the verses and I never took credit. That was the dumbest thing I ever did. And Tom Jones and George Jackson know it too. But I just wanted to finish the record. I rewrote every verse you hear except for the choruses. I didn't ask for credit. My manager said, you should ask for a third of the credit. And I said, nah, nobody's going to like it. I'm not credited on it, so I couldn't control the copyright either. Meanwhile, it got into a Hardee's commercial because I couldn't control it. Oh, my God, it was awful. <laughs> Hardee's or Carl's Jr.? Yeah, uh, it's Hardee's. We're Hardee's, because that's where we're from. Yeah. Where, yeah. Um, but others maintain that the song was fully intact before Seeger's recording. Uh, Malico Records, which was the label that purchased Muscle Shoals Sound Studios, uh, their executive, George Stevenson, claimed... Old Time Rock and Roll is truly George Jackson's songs, and he has the tapes to prove it, despite Seeger's claims that he altered it. Bob had pretty much finished his recording at Muscle Shoals, and he asked them if they had any other songs he could listen to for the future. Wow. wow. Do you have thoughts? Do you know? Uh, do you lean either way? Because I have an answer. Go ahead. I, there is an answer, and I found it. Okay. Um, here is what we know. George Jackson recorded a version of the song. Do we have it? And we have it. When he passed, uh, actually, I think this might have come out before he passed. He passed in 2013, I believe. Um, but this came out, best I can tell, in 2010 or 2011. So this... Which, I'm a math major, that would be before yeah, 2013. Exactly. So uh, this is George Jackson's version of old-time rock and roll. She take those old records off the shelf And sit and listen to them by What we have here is that the truth is kind of somewhere in between. 
there are parts of these lyrics that are definitely remain, you know what I mean? Similar At least in rhymes, spirit, words. You know what I mean? One's and about then, her versus right. we've got I. A, we've got third a change person. In, and... Exactly. Change in perspective. Uh, but, some of the, but some of the lyric is very much the same as what ended up. Some of it got changed and some of it didn't. So really... Both of these, you know what I mean? Everybody's kind of telling the truth here uh, if this is, uh, you know, unless, I mean, you never know with the internet, right? So unless this is a fake recording yeah. that is being sold, you know what I mean? And somebody's been duped just to just this to try and Fred really Jackson, son of George here. Jackson, trying <laughs> exactly, to. Yeah. Um, so, so if, if, you know, if that is in fact trustworthy as being by uh, George Jackson, then the, the truth is kind of somewhere in between. You know what I mean? Seeger did some stuff to it, and I think there's more change in uh, some of the further lyrics down the line, I think, than even to those first parts. But also some of it was original. So, yeah, I just thought that was pretty interesting. Big big controversy on that one. But apparently, now I haven't seen anything that that is, you know, in the articles that were on that sort of controversy. Nobody has said... Anything has been settled or, you know, everybody decided to just let it go because this recording was unearthed or whatever. So I really don't know where everybody, you know, stands on it or if it's even a big deal anymore. Maybe water under the bridge by this point. Um, but uh, before we get into our interview with Jim Moose Brown, who is Bob's keyboardist, guitar player, uh, and, and a fantastic songwriter in his own right, I want to talk about one other thing on this, and that is the lead guitar. Um, do you, do you have, did you catch anything on the lead guitarist for this? Not, not much at all. Um, okay. So, um, first let's go back and play a little bit of that, uh, lead guitar solo. This is after the first chorus of old time rock and roll. So this would be Pete Carr on lead guitar? No, this is not Pete Carr. Okay. And I'll tell you who it is in just a moment. Okay, so what we're hearing right there is a guy named Forrest Howie McDonald. Okay. Okay. Uh, the lead guitar player on this was not a Muscle Shoals rhythm section player. It was Forrest McDonald, a young man just passing through who happened to stop in the studio that day. Um, David Hood tells the story. He says he happened to come in the parking lot in his mother and daddy's car with them, and Jimmy was out on the back porch. Uh, he says, I believe his first name was Howie, but he probably goes by another name. But anyway, he came into the parking lot one afternoon, and Jimmy Johnson, guitarist, was out on the back porch, and he says, well, I'm a guitar player, and I'm one to learn how to play on recording sessions, and I think I'm good. Um, Jimmy says, well, you got your guitar with you? He says, yeah. Jimmy says, well, come on in. They put him on the track. His mother and daddy never even got out of the car. Oh, my goodness. They sat in the car in the parking lot with the AC running, and they put him on the track playing guitar, and it's on the record. It stayed on there. It was a good enough part that they kept it on there. Holy cow, that's a great story. Right? So I'm like, this is amazing. I got to find this out. This was from a you know one website, so I had to try to verify it because I was like, that can't be true. That's got, that's, you know what I'm saying? That's too fantastic to be actually true. Uh, so going, going down, I found Forrest McDonald's website. He's still out there playing. He's, I would say, based on his website and 
and you know just the kind of the looks of his current career he's flying very much under the radar okay uh, i'll say that but as he tells it uh, he was visiting his father in alabama and suggested they drive to Muscle Shoals to see what's going on. Uh, so they made their way to the studio. He said, when I walked in and met Jimmy Johnson, he asked me if I had my guitar with me. So I put on the headphones, plugged in my guitar, and gave him a solo. McDonald must have impressed the crew at Muscle Shoals. Two months later, the studio called to tell him that Bob Seger purchased the track for his Stranger in Town album. That's amazing. Literally, the dude's on vacation, drives up to a studio, and ends up playing on what was at the time just a demo. Uh-huh. Right? So there's, no, there, there's nothing on the line here. For the Muscle Shoals No, guys. it's a demo. It's They're a- just letting this kid come in and play on this demo. You know what I mean? Okay, fine. Play us a guitar solo. Let's see what you got. And that ends up being the guitar solo on one of the most well-known rock That's songs amazing. of all time. And nobody knows who you are. Which is a lesson. If you're on vacation, take your guitar with you. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, Because <laughs> if not, you're going to have to borrow somebody whose action's weird. And yeah. you're like, oh, this just doesn't feel like me. Won't feel like home. So no. if you ever go anywhere, just bring your guitar. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's awesome. Forrest Howie McDonald. Good job, Howie. How about that? Um, some pop culture covers, um, I know obviously Risky Business and it's, you know, the appearance in Risky Business has made many other offshoots, right? There's, it's, you know, appeared as, as the same kind of joke everywhere from Fresh Prince to The Simpsons, The Nanny, Scrubs. Alf. And of course, yes, everybody's favorite fluffy alien, Alf, uh, which I, I went back and watched a little bit of Alf. It's awful. It's terrible. Man. I grew up. Did you grow up watching Alf? Yes. I did too. And I thought it was the greatest thing ever. Me too. I even had an Alf stuffed animal. <laughs> well, I just lost cool points on that one. But for real. Yeah. I was like, gosh, this is so bad. It's literally like when there's a show and they're like doing a mock sitcom in a show. <laughs> it's that. It's that. Yeah. <laughs> that was Alf. So bad. Even the premise is just, anyway, it's so awful. Um, a few covers. You got any covers you want to mention? I didn't, I didn't jot down any covers this week. Okay, I had a couple. Uh, there was one by a guy named Johnny Halliday, who is a French rock and pop artist. Um, so it's basically, it's the whole thing is in French, except for rock and roll. Um, and he does the same thing, actually, uh, that George Jackson did in, in the rhythm of the words rock and roll. So Seegers is rock and roll, right? George Jackson's was old time rock and roll, that kind of thing. And that's the same thing that Johnny Halliday does. Um, there's a <laughs> – this one I'm only bringing up because I need you to tell a story, okay? Um, there is another cover, and I'll play a little bit of it because it's actually pretty solid. Uh, this is a guy named Phil Driscoll um, <laughs> doing old-time rock and roll from the album Vintage. And uh, take a listen to it for just a minute here. Okay, so it's solid. There's nothing at all, nothing at all wrong with that. Phil Driscoll is known worldwide as a trumpet player. He's a, a Christian music artist now. He does you know worship albums, but he's a wor- absolutely world class trumpet player. Started his career as a as a horn player for Joe Cocker, and um, and so has that kind of vibe. You can definitely hear that kind of vibe even in his voice. 
But I need JP to tell the story <laughs> of how he came to own Phil Driscoll's so keyboard. So I need to give a shout out to a big listener of the podcast, Joey Abbott, who actually I told him that we were going to be doing a Seeger song, and he's like, you're doing We've Got Tonight, right? And I'm like, no, that's Rob's. Um, <laughs> we so had Joey on the podcast with us. We you may remember Joey. Him. He was on the Monkeys episode. The Monkeys episode. episode. Gorilla, 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 gorilla. Gorilla, gorilla, Maybe my favorite moment from all of season two. <laughs> so shout out to Joey. Okay, so one year for Christmas... Joey gave me the greatest Christmas gift ever, which is Phil Driscoll's keyboard. Yes, Phil Driscoll's keyboard. So upstairs right now, I have Phil Driscoll's keyboard, and it's still got some original Phil Driscoll settings on it because they're saved on this disc. It's a it's a rolling keyboard, beautiful piece of machinery, and there's even one called Big Phil. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's obviously very – it's a trumpet sound, uh, oh, but it's okay. Big Phil, and uh, so it's like if you want to hear – some of Phil Driscoll's trumpet solos in keyboard fashion. You can play it on the Big Phil setting on the keyboard. You so. want to just bust one out right now? You, you know what? Know. I'm going to go grab it. Just go grab it. Big I'm, Phil. I'm, gonna go, I'm not going to do that. But thanks, Joey, uh, for the, being the supporter of the podcast and for the greatest Christmas gift ever. So. We got to get Joey back on. We got to get Joey back on. We, we need, need to hit a like Beach Boys song or something and get Joey we'll, back on. We'll in do here. something and get and get Joseph Tag Abbott back on the, uh, on the podcast. Um, I got a couple other Bob Seger facts, just one. Yeah. Big work ethic guy. So he's big, obviously, anybody that works on trucks and, you know, whatever. Yeah. He's a work ethic guy. Just That's kind of his whole gimmick. Mm-hmm. I say gimmick. I mean, it's authentic to him. You know what I'm saying? So I respect that Yeah, a lot. he's he's just all about, like, working class rock is Ex- what it is. I got a story to tie into that. In 1975, he had, in that year, he played 260 dates, which is pretty aggressive. Lot. Yeah. And in one stretch, he drove 25 hours straight to play three straight nights in Florida. Then they drove back 25 hours as they couldn't afford hotel rooms. Wow. And he said at that point in his career, he said he felt more like a driver than a singer. Oh, yeah. So that's uh, now he, here he is today. Jeez. Traveling in jets. Yeah. First class. <laughs> Wait till you hear the Moose Brown episode and you will appreciate that part of their travel life. All right. I got, I got one more cover. Um, that I want to bring up, and this is not for good reasons. Um, this is actually Michael Bolton um, <laughs> covering old time rock and roll. It's it's not. It doesn't sound bad, and he of course is a phenomenal singer. Okay, um, but he makes he makes the mistake that a lot of people do in covering um, a hit. Well, Something that no, somebody's in, in covering songs that have okay, so I'll try to explain this the way I think about it. This this song, "Old Time Rock and Roll," is kind of major and kind of minor. Okay, okay, it, it has what I would call like a bluesy third. It's got a it, it's got a it's tales of records on every time the third is sung. It's kind of not really minor or major. It's got English on it every time, but it it's happens, over a major chord. Right? Yes, and it's really yeah, it, it's. Yes, technically. It's almost like a nine chord that gives you the freedom to do this. Um, But yeah, if you had to play it, you would play it major, okay? But the third is not supposed to be major. It's not exactly minor either. It's got this, you kind of have to twist it to make it work, okay? So that it's not either one. Well, Michael Bolton falls into the classic trap of just singing it major the the whole time, okay? So this is a little bit... Of uh, Michael Bolton's version. I think the second verse is the worst offender. So I'm going to play you through kind of the second verse of this Michael Bolton version. Yeah, 
No thanks. It doesn't bother me. Really? Isn't that weird that it doesn't oh, bother me? Yeah. Maybe it's because I, I, I hate maybe Michael Bolton too. I thought, uh, yes, it's a chance maybe it's to take a I dig. Because I saw it. the album cover first. Oh my goodness. Oh, holy cannoli. <laughs> the album cover, you should just look up. It's Michael Bolton, Songs of Cinema. I think it's from 2017. So, like, it's recent. And he's kind of had a career renaissance in the last couple of years. Um, but uh, it looks like. It looks like every Southern Gospel album cover. <laughs> it really it looks so cheap. It does. Like, it looks like I I yeah, that's the It cheapest. looks like he had a decent photo made holding his jacket over his shoulder, standing up against a, you know, a wall, a wall at somebody's church, and then it just says it's got a big black bar at the top and, and he's it just like says, I'm going to print Bolton. the cover out on my computer at home. Exactly. It looks like yeah, it's that it's is exactly what it it's looks like. It's like I can make that at home on CD writer or whatever it is. Yes, exactly. Yes. CD stomp. CD stomp. Right? That's, that's it. it. Yes, yes, that's all great. Oh. Oh, man, fantastic. Uh, okay, so here's what we got now. We're going to transfer you over. We're going we're gonna to transmogrify you. We're going to warp you on over to our interview with Jim Moose Brown, who is the writer of the smash hit Five O'Clock Somewhere and tons of other songs. He is Bob Seger's touring keyboardist and guitarist, uh, and uh, he's got some other fascinating insight into life on the road with that kind of stuff. Um, what it takes, this is going to be really interesting for if you are a musician, uh, he's got some interesting takes on, you know, what it takes to like make it in that, in the industry and some truths about where the industry is now and maybe where the industry is headed. Um, and a huge thanks to him for doing that. He's a big time musician and travel. I mean, he's traveling with Bob Seger. So thanks to Moose Brown for taking some time to to speak with us. We really appreciate it. And thanks to the Bacchus family who introduced me to him. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Everybody, so we'll 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 tag in Jim Moose Brown at this point, and then we'll tag back in at the end to say goodbye. We'll wrap it up, but uh, we really hope you guys enjoyed this interview. Uh, we're going to take it now to Jim Moose Brown podcast. Okay, well let's let's start with the basics because our our um, we love giving our, our listeners a glimpse into people whose names they may not necessarily know, but whose works they probably know. Um, and I think that that may be the case with you. Um, so just tell us kind of a little bit about. Uh, yourself and your career in the music industry in general, and then we'll dig a little deeper. All right. Well, uh, I knew from the time I was probably 14 years old that I wanted to be a session musician and play on records. And uh, I worked in northeast Arkansas at my cousin's recording studio and playing on local jingles and custom albums and that kind of stuff. And I thought, man, if I can make a living doing this, you know, that would be a great life. And so I set out to do that after high school, moved over here in, in the early 80s, and pretty much that's what I've done uh, for the past 25 years or so. Outstanding. Can you uh, can you tell our listeners just uh, a few of the artists that you might know that you've played with, either sessions or live, or, or, or uh, maybe some songs that you've written that they may be familiar with? Well, when I first moved to town, I had to kind of – pay my dues and and I worked uh in the local clubs and then I made my way up to working with a couple Grand Ole Opry stars and uh that would would have been Jim Ed Brown and and Whispering Bill Anderson and uh then I then I actually uh worked in the 80s with uh, Marie Osmond she had a country deal at the time and was having big hits as a country artist and so I was in her touring band and my goal the whole time was to make it to to the point where I could play on sessions all the time. And after I left Marie uh, in the early 90s, I got a job with uh, Dan Seals, who was a country artist, had a lot of hits as a country artist in the 80s and 90s. And uh, 
his touring schedule, he only worked about 50 days a year, so that left me a lot of time to be in town and build up session accounts. And in 1994, I was able to get off the road. And in the late 90s, I started playing on a lot of artist records. And so I played on a lot of Brad Paisley's records, Blake Shelton, uh, Craig Morgan, uh, Darius Rucker, uh, Daryl Worley, uh, you know, just a lot of different folks. And a lot of people may not realize who are outside of the business, but most of the records that you hear coming out of Nashville, it's a small group of musicians that work in different combinations, and we kind of play on everybody's records. And uh, and then once once they record their records, they go out on the road and take their touring bands with them. But but uh, the musicians are session guys who kind of play on everybody's records in different combinations. So that's what I've been doing since the late nineties. Outstanding. I want to go back to something that you, that you said that you said pretty matter of factly, but I found pretty, pretty interesting and fascinating. And I'd like to maybe expand this out just a little bit. Uh, you said, um, you said you came into town and you started playing on records and you sort of worked your way up to playing with some Grand Ole Opry players, uh, Grand Ole Opry uh, stars. And uh, I would like to, I would like to maybe expand that time frame a little bit. And maybe for our listeners who are, who are players, uh, I'd like to know if you go into a session and what is it in that session that the artists that you're there, you know, to serve their record, what is it that they hear in your playing or, or what kind of experiences are they having in the studio with you that makes them say, man, I need this guy to stick around and I'm going to talk about this guy to somebody else. And then you start working your way up into these, you know, grand old Opry stars records. What, 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 what was that magic that happened that, that made that go? Uh, it's probably different for everybody. Um, but for me, my experience has been just the, just the step that makes anybody successful. You know, you show up on time, you're, uh, you listen and you work hard and go the extra mile and you're courteous and conscientious and and you know your craft you know and uh, that was that's my experience I'm I'm I definitely know I'm not the best musician in the world but uh, but I think I bring a lot of positives into the room I have a good um, mindset when I come in and and my job is to not be there for me my job is to be there and and help be that artist the best they can be. And uh, so I think it's just work ethic, you know, and all the things that make somebody successful in whatever line of work that you're in, you know. I think there's a lot of variables that are the same that make someone successful. Gotcha. Now, um, you are, are you primarily, I know you're kind of a renaissance man, are you, are you in your session work, are you primarily doing keys or guitar, or is it kind of a blend of both? Mostly keys. Uh, most people know me as a keyboard player. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a little bit more production here lately, and I'm producing some records on different people, and so I bring some of my guitar work into that. But uh, when I'm hired to be a session musician, it's almost always as a keyboard player. Gotcha. Well, uh, one of the songs that we definitely wanted to, to, um, to talk about with you, uh, because if we, if we heard correctly and understood correctly, uh, you played B3 on some ZZ Top stuff, uh, and particularly LaGrange. Is that right? Well, I didn't play on the original version of LaGrange, but um, a few years ago, 
there was a ZZ Top tribute album that was made, and it featured all different type of acts from uh, Steven Tyler to Jamie Johnson. And uh, I've co-produced some of Jamie Johnson's records. I co-produced In Color and and that Lonesome song, that album. And uh, he, um, Billy Gibbons was a big fan of Jamie Johnson. And uh, believe it or not, him. he's a big fa- yeah, he's a big fan of the steel guitar, and he loves and they Cowboy both have Eddie Long beards. steel playing. <laughs> they both yeah, have- and he does. Have, they both have great beards. You're right. And uh, so anyway, yeah, we went in and cut uh, a version of the Grange for this uh, tribute album, and then Billy had such a good time. We actually cut six more songs over two days, and they're in the can. Nothing's been done with them yet, but they're laying around. Wow, really interesting. The Billy Gibbons lost tapes. Just waiting to see the light of day. Very yeah, cool. That's right. Very cool. <laughs> um, and now you've you've also, in addition to your to your studio work, which is extensive, uh, we could spend a half hour just talking about the artists that you have uh, played with in the studio. Uh, but you're also a writer and, and as you said, a producer. Um, and uh, I guess probably the 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 song that you're most well known for is probably. Uh, it's five o'clock somewhere. Is that right? You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, I uh, years ago I didn't really give much thought about being a songwriter. I, I always knew I wanted to be a session player, and but uh, I had some songwriters approach me uh, because as a session player, back some years ago, a big part of a session player's work would be playing on songwriter demos when they would write four or five songs uh, that they wanted to pitch to artists they would get a, a session player band together and go in and cut these songs that they wrote and try to make them sound like records so they might have a chance of getting recorded. And so I met a lot of songwriters, and I had several approach me and wanted to write with me because they like writing with keyboard players, uh, you know, to get a different kind of melody than they're capable of getting. And so that's how I kind of backed into the whole songwriting thing. And the next thing I knew, I had a publishing deal with a company called Seagale Music, and that was owned by Brad Paisley and his producer at the time, Frank Rogers, and one of his best friends, Chris Dubois. And I wrote, ended up writing there for 16 years. And that was just that song poured out of a writing appointment that was scheduled uh, one day with a with a buddy of mine named Don Rollins. And uh, but, and that's kind of how songwriting is when you have a publishing deal. You sign a, a publishing deal, and they pay you in advance to go in and write so many songs per year. And so. It's very much like office hours. You go in every morning and, and try to write a song, you know. Yeah. Some days are magic and some days are not. But uh, right. that was a magical day. Yeah, no kidding. Magic magic for everybody involved. Um, <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, in in writing, what's your what's what is what do you what do you bring to the table writing are you are you primarily a music melody guy or do you bring lyrics you know kind of everything to the table what's what's the vibe like with you in the writing room uh probably like every facet of my career i feel like i'm a chameleon i feel like i uh i'm not the best in the world at anything but i'm good at a lot of different things and uh, are good enough at a lot of different things when i first started off i was definitely a melody person but uh, through hard work and asking questions and surrounding myself with people who are better than me, I learned, you know, I, I learned that if you go into a room with somebody who's really, really good at something and you learn to listen and ask key questions and then 
and then don't talk and listen. You learn, and I've, through the years, I've learned to be somewhat of a lyricist, um, and so I can bring that to the table. Probably my strength is a little bit more music, though. Gotcha. Um, I'm kind of a gear nut. This is JP over here on the other side. I'm kind of a gear uh-huh. nut. So kind of as a keyboard player, talk me through some of the, the early gear that you used as a keyboardist and an organ player. Were you a were you a like a Fender Rhodes guy? Were you a Hammond B3, obviously? Or were you mainly, did you do stuff just on synths and keys? Or what? Talk me through just some old gear and like how it's modernized into what you use today. Well, you know, for me, I went through a phase of where I was pretty deep into synth gear, but, but uh, nowadays it's kind of come full circle. I'm probably more of a, a piano B3, Whirly, Rhodes guy. Uh, I don't even have a lot of synth stuff anymore. I've, through, in my Pro Tools rig, I've got some software that I can trigger, but, but I don't really get too much into that. If it, if it calls for that, I usually call the guys who are really good at it. So I've, I've kind of uh, come full circle. I started off playing mostly piano and a little bit of B3, and I've kind of come back to that. Same, same question on guitar. Are you a gear nut in terms of, like, effects and pedals? Because I know you play guitar with, with Seeger as well, too. Do you Are you pretty just straight-laced, cut and dry, plug into the board? Or uh, Well, I'm, I'm kind of an organic purist, I think. I like the sound of an amp, and uh, I do have a Kemper, and I've got some other stuff like that. But uh, no, I like I like the sound of a, of a speaker moving air, and uh, I'm not a big pedal guy. I was at one time back in the '90s. It, everybody in Nashville was kind of running direct and and using a lot of stereo chorus and delay and that kind of stuff. And I I had a spell where I tinkered in that. But but my favorite stuff is just pretty simple and letting the amp do the work and getting the overdrive from the amp. And with Seeger, I don't even really use any pedals. I, I use uh, just a couple little pedals, but I even rely on the amp for the overdrive pretty much, just straight into the amp sound. So what somebody might call old-time rock and roll is what you're saying. <laughs> pretty much, you know. Uh, there, I, I think... Uh, I think it's the sound that has stood the test of time. You know, we go through phases, but it always seems to come back to somebody plugging into an amplifier and then a room of people going, room full of people going, oh my gosh, that sounds incredible. What is that? Uh, it's just the amp, you know? Yeah. It's true. It, it even sounds, it even, like, it even makes me feel good to hear people talk like that. You know what I mean? Like, even just talking about plugging an amp into a, pl- plugging a guitar into an amp and just letting it rip, it just feels good to say. Um, yeah. Let's let's talk about since since we've we've kind of gotten into your work with Bob Seger. Let's kind of talk about your um, your you've you've toured extensively with him for a, a good long while now. Um, tell us a little bit about how how that happened and and what's uh, you know what's life on the road with one of the most successful live acts uh, you know uh, of the last you know thirty forty years. Well, I kind of backed into that whole deal too. Uh, you know, Nashville is a, a is a small music community. It's a large city, but everybody in the music business either knows of one another or knows each other. And, and uh, Seeger, since the '90s, has cut most of his records here in Nashville, and he likes to use Nashville session guys because, uh, by comparison to other music meccas around the country, the, the the musicians here are pretty versatile and can play rock and play jazz and play country. And, and uh, so he's found that he can make his records 
uh, more cost efficient here because he can uh, cut an album in a week where it might take him six months in Detroit or New York or someplace else. So, so anyway, um, he was about to do his first tour that he'd done in 10 years back in 2006. He hadn't done a tour since 1996 up to that point. And uh, he was recording in Nashville, and he asked a buddy of mine uh, and uh, about, uh, you know, if he knew of anybody who could play guitar and keyboards. And uh, he, thank goodness, recommended my name. And uh, so he, uh, the phone rang one night, and it was Bob Seger. And he, he said, is this Moose? And I said, yeah. And he said, this is Bob Seger. And it was completely random, out of the blue. I wasn't expecting a call. And I almost didn't believe it was him. And, uh, well, why would said, you? Man, I mean, uh, why would you just expect a random phone call for Bob Seger? Yeah, uh, exactly. And so uh, we talked. I'm originally, ironically, I'm originally from Detroit. I, I was I was born in Detroit and lived in Detroit until I was 14. And he's uh, Seger's from Detroit. And so once he found that out, he was like, "Man, I'm going to do a tour. You need to come up here and hang out." And uh, for whatever reason, he took a liking to me. So. Uh, that's kind of crazy. I'm a hillbilly piano player, and I'm out playing electric guitar with Bob Seger. So. Now, Detroit-related, are you a Pistons fan? Are you a Lions fan? Are you a Tigers fan? Are you none of the above or all of the above? Uh, you know, I used to be when I lived there, especially a Tigers fan. My dad used to take me to Tigers games. Uh, as football, I've become a Titans fan, and I have season tickets, so... Uh, as painful as that is sometimes, I'm still a Titans fan. Well, it would be painful to be a Lions fan, too. Yeah, to be honest, yeah. But... Uh, you, you didn't have your, your years as a Lion, either. <laughs> Are you a Ted Nugent fan? He's also a Detroit guy, right? I I love his music. I saw him back when I was in high school. Yeah, he rocks. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, one other tour question to go back on the tour thing. I asked this. We asked this to everybody. You're on tour with Seeger, and you stop at a gas station. What is your gas station snack food of choice? What do you go in and get? Do you get Coke, peanuts, M&Ms? What's your gas station snack food of choice? All right. Well, I'm going to pull a rock star uh, move on you here. Uh, we have a very – it's not like a country gig – uh, there's no tour buses involved with the band. It's all private jets. Okay. And so, so, so we don't really stop at any gas station. But here's a typical week for us. Bob works every other night, and he's got his own private plane, and he's got his own Learjet. And so after the show, he flies home, has a day off to rest his voice. The band, we typically spend the night in the city that we work in. The next day, we get on our private plane, go to the next city, and have a night off. And then we work the next night. Uh, spend the night there, and then the next day we go to the next city, have a night off. So it's pretty. My my biggest challenge out there is trying to not lose my mind from sitting around because we play uh, a show every other day, and uh, and then I'm you know we don't travel on a bus or anything, so I'm just in a hotel a lot. So I try to find things to walk around the city. I know it sounds like a huge problem, but dude, you you definitely are are another level of rock star than we're used to talking to. Okay, you're on tour with Rob and JP. What do you get at a gas station? Ah, <laughs> uh, probably Diet Coke. There we go. Possibly a heat. That answer and a will suffice. <laughs> and a Heath bar. And a oh, Heath bar. Okay. My man, my man. Go. Okay. Outstanding, outstanding. Um, 
Well, we, we don't want to keep you long. We, we're certainly so appreciative of your time. Thank you so much. Um, uh, we do want to ask, we'd like to ask everybody, uh, is there anything that you got going on, anything that's in the works right now that you want our listeners to know about or anywhere that they can find you to keep up on social media or you know anything like that? Well, I've decided I'm old because I have uh, Twitter, but I don't I don't really ever get on there. Okay. But uh, I do have fa- I am on Facebook, but uh, I, you know I've kind of shifted the last three or four years uh, kind of uh, to producing more, and I've kind of pulled myself out of the session world as as much as I used to be in it. Uh, I, I still play on some records here and there. Like last year, I played on. Uh, gosh, I played on a Kid Rock album and a Seeger album and Allison Krauss and Willie Nelson and uh, Trace Atkins. I uh, just played on a Reba record, so I'm kind of all over the map, but I don't do a whole lot of demos anymore. And uh, I've got my own studio here at my place. And uh, so I'm, I'm in the middle of, a, of an album I'm producing on Mo Pitney. And uh, I'm also in the middle of an album I'm producing on Heidi Newfield from Trick Pony. She's doing a solo record so both of those hopefully will be out pretty soon uh, we should have a single out on Mo around the first of the year and hopefully Heidi too so so I'm kind of excited about those projects outstanding I love how you're just so casual it's it, this is cracking me up because you're just so, so casual with the way you talk that it's easy to miss what you're actually saying like you're, <laughs> you're like oh yeah you know I've kind of pulled back a little bit last year I only played with you know and then listed like <laughs> 10 records that anybody would cut off their right arm to be able to be on the record, you know? So I, I love that for you, that's pulling back. Well, I tell you what, 15 years ago when Nashville was really, really booming before all the, I don't know what the cause of it is, probably streaming and illegal downloading. And, and, and so back then there were a whole lot more record labels and a whole lot more artists. And there was a lot more recording going on. And so, uh, man, back, back then I could, all, any session player could <clears throat> work all day, every day for different artists and stay really busy. And it's kind of not like that as much anymore. Uh, so although that sounds like a lot, that's you got to remember, that's over a year's time. So I mean, that's, that's not that, that much. You know, used to, I might play on 30 or 40 big artist records back 15 years ago. So it is kind of slowed down. And, and the fact that I've cut out doing pretty much all demos because back then there were so many songwriters that uh, I mean, you could a uh, session player could spend his whole career doing demos and stay really busy and make a good living. And uh, there's not that many full band demo sessions anymore. So yeah, I, I spend probably a lot more time out here at my studio than I do in Nashville these days, and I kind of like that because I don't have to fight the traffic and and uh, I'm kind of investing in my career and future a little bit more than I am not that not that I didn't enjoy investing in everybody else's career but but I've just kind of slowed the pace down a little bit and I've I've, I'm really enjoying producing more these days outstanding let me ask you just one more question speaking of the future uh because you having having a career as touring musician session musician writer and producer uh gives you kind of a unique perspective and I'd like to just ask if if you have thoughts on the future of Nashville, the future of the songwriting community as a whole, 
Um, if you see, if there are sort of changes that you see on the horizon or that you just kind of speculate, you know, it, like 15 years ago, you say, you know, it, everything in Nashville was a lot busier. There was a little more bustle. Uh, and then this sort of shift in the music industry happened. And now it's made this change and this change and this change. Do you see any other things that you think might be on the horizon or another place that you could, you know, down the road, 15 years from now, you think Nashville or the music industry in general might be in? Ah, man, that's a good question. It's kind of hard to say. I mean, it's it's probably, for a guy like me, the scariest time in in music history, but it's also possibly the most exciting time because nobody knows what you're asking. Uh, people are going to get their... You know, a guy like me, a songwriter who at one time when, when uh, it was a lot easier to get a song cut because there was a lot more artists and uh and terrestrial radio was it's still strong but uh the chances of getting a cut are a lot it's a lot more difficult these days so it's hard to make a good living as a songwriter if you're depending on streaming and that kind of stuff because it really doesn't pay very much so i'm scared for the young guys coming up who want to be a songwriter i think it's going to shift probably to there's not going to be guys who are just considered songwriters anymore you're going to have to wear several hats to make a living you're probably going to have to be a musician and an artist and your songwriting will be a part of your craft that gets people to your shows to sell tickets, and that's probably going to be the way. There used to be a time when, a, when an old guy like me could get a publishing deal and be paid to, to write songs, and I kind of miss that a little bit just because sometimes you have to have lived a while to have something really important to say. You know, you have to have lived through some things. Uh, a lot of the artists nowadays who are cutting their own stuff, they're really young and 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 I don't know that I relate to it as much being a little bit older. You know, I like a tailgate song as much as anybody, I suppose, but sometimes I like to hear something that really makes my hair stand up, and I'm not really hearing that a whole lot like I used to, you know, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's going to shift to where guys, the songwriters who just do songwriting are probably going to fade away like the dinosaur, but but it's going to shift into something else, and there's a lot of exciting talent come up, coming up. And I tell you what, uh, there's a lot of exciting ways that you can find music now that you couldn't. When I, I mean, as a consumer, I can't think of anything more exciting than being able to, hey, I want to hear a song, and you go to the Internet, and boom, there it is. You know, I didn't have that growing up, so it's definitely an exciting time for the consumer, you know. It's just how we're all going to get paid and 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 be paid well is what's up in question. You know what, what's up in here. Yeah have you have you kept up with any of the the proposed legislation, the Music Modernization Act, any of that stuff? Do you have thoughts on on any of that? Oh, I, I think it's a great first step. I think it's gonna it's gonna take uh, my my initial thought is it's going to take something that's pretty bleak and make it give us a little bit of hope, but I don't see it being life-changing because it's still going to pay such a minimal rate. Uh, but, uh, you know, that that precedent was set a while that precedent was set a while back, and so any change in the other direction is good. I think it's a great first step. But, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's just hard to make a living as a songwriter these days because everybody kind of wants it for free, you know, and I don't know how you combat that. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of people don't can't see the value in a song, I think because they can't hold it in their hand. You know, if you go buy a Coke or a candy bar or whatever, it's something physical that you can hold in your hand. Uh, a song, you know, like 5 o'clock somewhere, a lot of people don't realize that 
that was one of 40 songs I wrote that year, probably. And uh, a lot of hours were invested and, and, and put into that luck of that one day that I wrote right. that song, you know. Sure. And then and then they don't realize the cost of demoing the song. I probably had several thousand dollars invested in that demo session in order for Alan Jackson to hear it and then the label probably put several hundred thousand dollars into or more than that actually into the recording of it and then maybe a million dollars in pushing it up the charts. So there's a lot of money that goes into making music that people want for free. Right. And it's hard to convince somebody of that when you can't hold it in your hand and if that's that's the uh, that's the fight that we face you know making sure people understand that it has value even though you can't really maybe see it yeah i, I want to put that on a billboard and make a t-shirt and maybe a slap bracelet or something and just start distributing those around uh yeah that's <laughs> i mean that's a really good perspective that that uh you know that a lot of people don't don't understand um that's that's really well. Good. Here's another side of it too. Here's another side of it too. There was a time in Nashville, uh, in around the year 2000, that there were some 2,000 songwriters who had publishing deals and they were, they were getting a, an advance to write songs, and the bulk of those songwriters had success by getting album cuts. Say, like if you got a George Strait cut and George sells four million records, that's going to generate you know, a pretty good amount of income for you. And you might not ever have a song on the radio, but you could still make a living as a songwriter. Sure. But nobody's sure. selling records like that anymore. They're, yeah. Everybody's streaming. And so uh, streaming or borrowing it for free. Yeah. And uh, so it's just, it, it, you know, right now, I read that right now there's less than 200. It, we, we've dropped by that much. We went from 2,000 songwriters with publishing deals. Now there's less than 200, wow. some 18 yeah. years later. Because uh, people aren't buying the music anymore, and and the streaming has paid so uh, such a small amount. So th- this uh, this modernization act is going to help turn us in the right direction, and I hope it's just the beginning of getting the value back up. But uh, it's it's uh, it's a scary time for a songwriter. Indeed, it is, and here's hoping that uh, that writers and producers start getting uh, back the the full credit that they deserve, and we can do something to increase revenue for for writers uh in from from streaming companies i'm i'm with you on that we don't want to end on we don't want to end on kind of a um you know a, a down subject so let me ask you one more question before we go if that's okay uh-huh. um yeah as a keys player uh piano in particular what are a couple of the piano riffs or piano parts that as a musician still inspire you? Every time you hear it, you go, oh, man, that's really how it's done. Well, anytime I listen to Oscar Peterson, mm. uh, um, I, he was a big inspiration to me. Uh, and believe it or not, Elton John, I love, and Billy Joel, I love their records. Um, uh, there's a session player in Nashville that was actually a big influence on me, and he, he played on a lot of records in the 90s, and, and uh, his name was Matt Rawlings. And Matt's a session guy. He moved to L.A. for a long time, but he's back in Nashville now. He's quite a bit younger than me, but but uh, when I first heard him, I thought, man, that guy is... And I really dug into his style of playing. Uh, Big Robbins, who played on a lot of country records that you would probably know. He actually played on Five O'Clock Somewhere, but he played on records back in the 19, late 1950s, a lot of the George Jones stuff. and uh, So, yeah, I've been influenced by a whole lot of different people. 
a lot of different styles. Outstanding. Well, again, thanks so much for your time. We, we really appreciate you joining us. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll sign off with you now. But uh, thanks so much. And uh, we wish you all the best in everything that you're doing in your, in your future endeavors, production and songwriting and sessions and beyond. Um, and uh, just thanks so much for being with us on the podcast. We appreciate it. You got it. Thanks for calling. Podcast. Man, so cool. Like getting that kind of perspective on the industry and that kind of inside baseball is just fascinating to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, just so remember kids, just work hard, show up on time, be nice to people, be diligent. Yeah. Be diligent and just know your stuff and you'll be shocked at, at, you know, where you can end up and the kind of career you can carve out for yourself. Um, thanks again to Jim Moose Brown for the, for the interview and the time. Uh, just uh, incredible to be able to, you know, talk to somebody who's a legit player, and by player I mean a, a legit agent in the industry in all manner of ways. Uh, very cool, very very cool. And as always, before we sign off, we want to remind you guys that you can find everything you need at greatsongpodcast.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at greatsongpod. Find us on Facebook at the Facebook community group called. Uh, great songs and the great people who love them greatly do a lot of interacting on there. Uh, who knows if you if you hit us up on there, you may wind up getting a great song podcast sticker in the mail to you know go vandalize your local high school with or something. <laughs> um, so thanks as always for listening. We can't wait to get the rest of the season in your hands. We've got so much good stuff to bring your way. We just can't wait to get into it. You know what? I think season four, we just do 25 episodes and drop them all on the same day. <laughs> you know, it'll take us eight months to make, but we'll, we'll get there. Uh, anyway, uh, go check out some merch. Click on the merch tab at greatsongpodcast.com. If you want to support the show, that is a way you can do it. We bring this to you free of charge and we're glad to do it. But if you want to support the show, you can show some love by buying a t-shirt, a hoodie, uh, a tank top. It's, you know, it's going to be, Hey, spring is on the way it's happening. So let's do this thing. Uh, grab a, grab a great song podcast, grab a Jerry Rafferty tank top. There you go. Who doesn't need a Jerry Rafferty, Neil Sean mashup <laughs> tank top. Come on. Um, so yeah, we'll see you guys next week, but in the meantime, I'm Rob. I'm JP. Go listen to some music. <laughs>